It is true as we sang and as your word reminds us, particularly the psalmist, that wherever man may dwell, oh God, you are present there. David said if he went to the remotest part of the sea or took hold of the dawn, no matter where he was, that your hand would lead him and guide him. And so we who know you take such comfort that we are never alone, that you are our God and you will never leave us and forsake us and you have reconciled us to yourself in the most intimate way to call us into fellowship, our Father, with you through the Son. And so we are thankful and We are thankful again that you have given to us your word. We ask now that as we finish looking at aspects of your gifting, your church, and us as individuals, that you would encourage us, that you would shape us and mold us uh, to be what you want us to be as your people, as your gathered people, as your body, and that you would be preparing our hearts as we get ready to take the table, which is our witness uh, to the world, a proclamation of your death and your return, as well as a comfort to our souls to remind us of all of your promises that are yes and amen in Christ. And it is to your glory, and in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, open up your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. You'll notice that it says in your bulletin that this is part 3. We were going to end with part 2, but at least uh, a couple of people had mentioned that we don't need to rush so quickly and we can take the last two points that we brushed over uh, pretty fast last week as we are discussing spiritual gifts. And of course, we're not discussing everything related to spiritual gifts. We certainly, as I mentioned before, aren't discussing what kind of gifts were present in the first century, in the second century, what kind of gifts we can expect now, and how the Lord works miraculously and continually in His church through the Holy Spirit. Those kind of things we have uh, set to the side to focus on Peter's main point, which is mainly how gifts are to function within the church of God and what the end of those gifts are, whatever they may be. And they are to function, as we've mentioned, to the building up of the body of Christ. God has enabled all of us to serve in some way the church, to serve one another, that we would encourage one another, comfort one another, teach one another, disciple one another, that we would, in the varied and manifold ways that God has gifted us, be participating in His work of building up the body of Christ to His glory. So we've, we looked at that in eight separate points, and we've covered six up to this point. Uh, uh, that kind of rhymed, sorry, just caught me off guard. We've covered up six uh, up to here, up to today, this morning, but we're going to look at the last two this morning, namely that gifts are to bear the fruit of the Spirit, the spiritual gifts bear the fruit of the Spirit, namely love, and that all of our gifts are to the glory of God. We mentioned those last week, but we'll consider those a bit more closely this morning. John tells us, the Apostle John, in 1 John 4, 7 through 8, he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. That's 1 John 4, 7 through 8. The very heart of our fellowship together, the very evidence of our life as being transformed, our possession of eternal life, is that love functions among the people of God. Jesus himself prayed to the Father these words in John 17, 
O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. Those are words that are really beyond our comprehension in their fullness, at least why we're here. But Jesus himself is saying that the love with which the Father has loved him, that is the love with which the Father has loved him, not only as the incarnate Son, not only as the Messiah, but the love that the Father has eternally loved him with as the Son is the love that the Father shows to us who are in the Son. To simplify that even more, salvation and eternal life is at its heart, among other things, being engrafted into the eternal love relationship of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That is at the very heart of redemption. And staggering to think of, I myself can't begin to imagine the fullness of it. Paul himself prayed that we might know the height and the depth and the length and the breadth of the love of God for us in Christ Jesus. And as we grasp that love more and more, we are filled up to the fullness of God, he says in Ephesians chapter 3. So it's essential that we understand that. But the point this morning is simply to say this, that love is what marks the people of God. Love for the brethren is what marks the reality of an experience of genuine salvation, of regeneration, of reconciliation to God through Christ, of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And the fruit that that Spirit produces in His people is love, consistent with the life that He gives. So love is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. It's the spiritual lifeblood of our fellowship. It's the flavor of our service. And it's all to the glory of God. So let me read for us again this section. 1 Peter chapter 4, 7-11. through 11, And then we're going to consider primarily this morning the fruit of the spirit of love and the exercise of our spiritual gifts. And then we'll look briefly at the end in verse 11 at the glory of God as we exercise these gifts faithfully. But let's just for context sake, begin with verse 7 and reach down to verse 11. And remember, at the beginning of verse 7, sets the tone of the whole section here of 7 through 11 anyway. Namely, that this is how we live in light of the fact that the end of all things is near. So he says in verse 7, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterance of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belongs the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Tremendous passage. And of course, the context here in the last, in verses 10, 11, is our serving one another with spiritual gifts that God has supplied to us as his people. As I mentioned, we're going to consider then the seventh mark of these gifts, which is that they are to have the fragrance of love. So here's, here's the point. Spiritual gifts should have the fragrance of love, and that is the right use of our gifts are marked by the fruit of the Spirit. The right use of our gifts are marked by the fruit of the Spirit. 
As noted, and we read, that Peter has already established the biblical emphasis on love as the chief mark of Christian fellowship. And he makes these amazing statements in verse 8. He says, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sin. But if you flip it back to chapter 1 and verse 22, I'll just read this to you. He says, since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from, from the heart. In other words, at the very heart or the very center of embracing the gospel of Christ and knowing the grace of God in Christ is an embracing of love for the brethren. It is a mark of what it means to trust Christ, to know Him. Love is essential then to the reality of spiritual life. And we noted before, when we looked at this in verse 8, when he says, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, that love is not, or love is of the very essence of God. It is not to say that God's entire essence is described or defined by love, but John does say in 1 John 4, 8, that God is love. Love is an essential part of who he is. It's of his being. It's of his nature. Love originates within himself. He doesn't have to put on love as much as he is love. And when he acts, it's consistent with his love, his holy love as God. Holy love is then at the heart of redemption. He says in 1 John 4, By this the love of God was manifest in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sin. So it is a love that is a part of God's nature. It's a love that is consistent with His holiness and His justice. It is a love that satisfied itself, not in ignoring sin, but actually absorbing sin himself, the sin of others, so that he might extend his love out beyond himself to his creation and to his image bearers. He, by his own act of love, removed the barrier of our sin, bearing it himself and his son and punishing him that he might invite us into the blessings of reconciliation. So his love is a holy love, it's a redeeming love, and it's the summary of God's requirement of us. He says at the end of that section in John, 1 John 4, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. And Paul summarizes up the whole law in this way, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law in Romans 13.8. So again, love is central to the gospel, God's love for sending us Christ, our love to God for Christ, and our love for one another in Christ. Love is essential of what it means to be a child of God. So what does that have to do with here? It has everything to do with our use of gifts. The use of our gifts, as with anything we do, cannot be separated then from the spiritual fruit of love. It can't be. Scripture's most beloved chapter then on the fruit of love comes right in the middle of a discussion on the spiritual gifts. So in 1 Corinthians 13, and we're going to turn there, Paul is, brings up the matter of love in one of the most concentrated descriptions of love in the New Testament. And he does so to teach these warring and faction and pride, prideful and dividing Corinthians what it means to 
live the gospel in the exercise of their gifts. So go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Or excuse me, 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13. And as I mentioned, this comes in the middle of Paul's discussion on spiritual gifts. Uh, He's answering questions. He's bringing up the issue of spiritual gifts that he begins in chapter 12 and will end it in chapter 14. And right in the middle of this discussion of how they are to exercise spiritual gifts, what are the purpose of spiritual gifts, what are the ends of spiritual gifts, is this chapter on the fruit of the Spirit, namely love, which is to mark everything that we are to that we do in the name of Christ. Now we're familiar with this passage and we're not, so we're not going to spend a lot of time here, but I do want to make some connections between Paul's explanation here in 1 Corinthians 13 with of love and our need to display it to one another and its importance in our life as a body of Christ. Uh, read with me first the first few verses. He says, if I speak with the tongue of men and of angels. Well, actually, back up just a bit. To This section really begins right before that uh, in chapter 12, uh, verse 30. He says this after a discussion of the various kind of gifts. He says, verse 31 of chapter 12, earnestly desire the greater gifts. And he says, I'll show you a more excellent way. And then he begins. If I speak with the tongue of men and of angels but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Love does not brag is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know just as I fully, just as I have also been fully known. But now faith, hope, love, abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Again, one of the most marvelous and beautiful chapters in all of Scripture, recognized in its beauty and its glory, even by those who reject Christ. Even an unbeliever can read this chapter and say that is one of the most beautiful descriptions of love, even if they don't yet know the full heart of it as it's manifest in Christ and in the gospel. Love, then, is at the center of what it means to Live out the Christian life. Look back up at the first few verses. Let's look at the first few verses. And note first that love is necessary for the use of our gifts, for them to have any value before God. Any value before God. Again, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. If I have prophecy and know all mysteries and knowledge and all faith, but so as to remove mountains, don't have love, I am nothing. 
And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Notice what he says here. He does not say that if I have all of those things, then my giftedness amounts to nothing. He says, if I have all of those things, I am nothing. Myself, I personally amount to zero before God. He says in verse 2 at the end, I am nothing. Verse 3, it profits me nothing. He says in verse 13 and and verse 1, or excuse me, verse 1, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I myself, my very person radiates that which is not glorious but annoying before God. That which is to him bothersome. And I myself have no value then and have been profit before him in whatever the greatness of the display of my gifts or even my personal sacrifice, if it does not have the fruit of love motivating it and radiating from it, then it is of no value. Of course, the Corinthians prized the external showiness and self-congratulatory sacrifice above the sacrificial love, above self-denial, above putting self last. The whole issue that he had to address again and again, Paul did with the Corinthians, of course, was the fact that they saw all that they had received from God, not as a means of lowering themselves to build up others, but rather lowering others to build up themselves. They had a self-centered end in their mind, as you could imagine. This isn't so unlike, of course, what we see in churches because though redeemed we are still infected with the presence of sin and one of the most glaring presence of sin is the failure to love the failure to love they were less concerned about how their gifts built up the church or others and how it re- and more concerned with how it reflected on themselves they put more value in the evaluation of others than themselves, or the evaluation of themselves, than God's evaluation of the end. And in the end, it's God's evaluation that matters the most. It's God's evaluation that matters the most. You ever consider the fact that God could do what He wants to do? He could accomplish what He wants to accomplish without us. He doesn't need us. We're not, He, he makes us integral to His plan, but that's not, not because we have to be. It's because He's chosen to design the world and the church in such a way that He accomplishes His purposes through His people. He does not need His people. He chooses to use His people. And yet so often we view ourselves, or we can have the tendency to view ourselves, as if we are the ones indispensable to God's plan and to God's purposes. But at the end... We will be evaluated not on the external fruit of what we produce or not on any particular display of skill or any measure of talent. The evaluation when we stand before Christ will be based on the exercise of our gifts in accordance with love. So instead of... I want you to turn over, if you would, just briefly to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I want to look at this closely just to emphasize this point. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we're going to look very broadly at verses 1 through 15. As we mentioned, and as you're, anybody who's familiar with the book of 1 Corinthians knows, again, that one of the things that Paul was continually having to deal with was their tendency to divide into little groups, their tendency to be self-exalting, 
their tendency to view the Christian life in relationship to how it reflected on them, their own rights. They were missing the heart of all that God had called them to as a body of believers, which was to serve one another, not to exalt self. Basic, but it's something that needs to be reminded of. We need to be reminded of again and again, even as Paul had to remind these Corinthian believers. And so he does in chapter 3 of verse 1. He says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you are not able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly, and are you not walking like mere men? You notice there in verse 3, are you not still fleshly? He's not here defining a class who can live the entirety of their Christian life in a sense of carnality and a sense of fleshliness. He's going to address that throughout. And at the end of 2 Corinthians, he's going to say, you need to test yourself to see whether you be in their faith and if there is repentance. But he is saying that in this moment and in this particular instance, you are acting like an unbeliever. You're acting like an unbeliever. You're thinking like an unbeliever. You're not thinking like a Christian. And what is the evidence that they're not thinking like a Christian? There's jealousy and there's strife. Those things do not reflect the gospel. Those things do not reflect the life that you have in Christ. They are the fruit of pride. They are the fruit of fleshliness. For them, it was their tendency to align themselves with a particular teacher. And again, behind this is the heart that is not concerned about the growth of the church. They're not saying that I'm aligning myself with this particular teacher because I think this particular teacher is the one who is the most effective in building up the body of Christ. They're aligning themselves with a particular teacher because by acknowledging the giftedness of that particular teacher, in this case, Paul or Apollos, they're bearing testimony to their own wisdom and insight. They're bearing testimony in their minds anyway to their own spiritual perception that is able to see the value of the ministry of one over and above another. And that might sound all well and good to the Corinthians, but I think you would agree with me that we see this exact same thing in the church today. And when I say the church, I mean by and large. It can happen among us. And maybe in small ways, sometimes it does. It happens in larger ways. In other congregations, we tend to have a celebrity pastor kind of culture. I am of MacArthur. I am of Piper. I am of Sproul. I am of Lawson. I am of whoever. That's the one I align with. You have these different camps. And so the MacArthur camp doesn't associate with the Piper camp. That doesn't associate with the Sproul camp. Or maybe a little bit, but we're really critical about it. There's always that tendency, and why? Because we're saying, well, the one I align with is the one that is most in the will of God, the one that is most consistent with what glorifies God. And so it reflects more on us than it does any particular insight. We know what this is like. This isn't so far from our own experience. It's always been the tendency, again, of remaining pride in us that wants to seem more wise, more spiritual, more insightful than we actually are. But Paul says this is foolish for a few reasons. And look at verse 4, or verse 5. 
Or verse 4, it says, when one says, I'm of Paul, or am I am of Apollos, are you not merely men? He says, what, verse 5, what then is Apollos, and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field, God's building. And according to the grace which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it, but each man must be careful how he builds. So Paul says this dividing up is, is foolish. And it's foolish for a few reasons. And let's just look at these. One is he says that each person can only do what God has called them to do. In other words, what is one received, or what does one have that one has not received? He says in verse 5 again, What are Apollos and what are Paul? Servants to whom you believe, even as the Lord gave implied opportunity to each one. In other words, whatever was produced through either of their ministries, and in both of these cases it would be through the speaking ministry, a speaking teaching gift. And he says, what do we have? What do I have? What did Apollos have that God didn't give to us? Secondly, what did we effort or ability did we display except for what God supplied? I planted, Apollos watered, but God was calling, causing the growth. God is the one who gave us the ministry. God is the one who supplied the strength for the ministry. And God is the one who provided the fruit of the ministry. It was God who was causing the growth. Neither he who plants or he who waters is anything in and of themselves. But we are merely servants of God. The fruit of the person's ministry is completely God's doing, he says. Not our doing. One could easily go into a place and see very little fruit and another could see much fruit. And at the end of the day, Paul says that the heart of it is God's purposes, not the servant himself. And fourth, he says the end of it all is just to fulfill God's purpose anyway. We're his fellow workers. You're God's field, God's building, and so on. We work by the grace which God has given. We have the opportunities which God supplies we, see, we put forth the energy and the effort that God gives to us. And all to the end that God would fulfill his purpose, which we only know as it comes to pass. But then he says this. And let me read it again at the end of verse 10. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. Verse 11. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, and precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If each man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If a man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire." Now, Paul's primary emphasis here, specifically, he's referring to those with teaching ministry. In other words, he's referring to the teachers who have come among Corinth. And he's saying that whoever builds on this foundation laid by Paul, watered by Apollos, 
is going to receive the reward if he builds consistent with the foundation that was laid, namely the truth of Jesus Christ. But the principle is broader than that. While the specific application is to teachers, in this case, those with speaking gifts, which we noted last week, the motivations or the, print, or the principles are applicable to all. And there are essentially three criteria by which we will be judged in the exercise of our gifts. Three criteria. Let me give them to you. The first is related specifically to those with speaking gifts. Those with speaking gifts. And that is faithfulness to the truth. Faithfulness to the message. He says in verse 18, Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. For it is written, He, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasoning of wise that they are useless. Paul has already established the wisdom and the foolishness that he's speaking of as that which is the wisdom of the world, which is foolishness to God, and the wisdom of God, which is foolishness to the world. He addresses that in chapter 1. These are those teachers who had come in and who were adopting the mindset of the world and the wisdom of the world and letting it pervert and corrupt the message of Christ crucified, which was the foundation that Paul laid. And so, first of all, there's going to be an evaluation of whether it's wood, hay, and stubble or gold and precious stones based on whether you use your speaking gift consistent with the truth. And we noted that last week, that knowing accurately the Word of God is a part of the requirement and the responsibility of one who is gifted to teach the Word of God. I won't belabor that. But then he goes in chapter 4 and he mentions a second one. And this is relating to 1 Corinthians 13. He says this. Now they were accusing him, some of these false teachers, of wrong kind of motives, of being in it for his own personal gain. And he says, let a man regard us in verse 4 in this manner as servants of Christ, as stewards of the mysteries of God. And he says this though, jump forward. In verse 4 he says, I'm conscious of nothing against myself. Yet I'm not by this acquitted, but the one who me, examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. And that's something that applies to all of us. When we stand before God, we may say, look how many people I served, look how sacrificially I gave, look how much skill I exercised, whether it be in teaching or some kind of talent or service within the church, look how much praise I received from others as they were impressed with my abilities, look at how much good I actually did, and the evaluation of the Lord will say, but what is the hidden thing? That's the observable thing. What is the hidden thing? That no one else knows but the Lord himself. What is the thing hidden in darkest? That is when the motives, he says, of men's hearts will be displayed. And what is the motive that will be displayed? That's what he addresses in verse chapter 13. Love. Was what we've done, is what, is, is what we have done, was it done in love? Was it done out of a fruit of love of the gospel and love for those who belong to Christ? 
That's what we're evaluated on in our spiritual gifts. Faithfulness to the message, yes, of course, but the motive of our heart, the motive of our heart and the deeds of our life that reflect genuine transformation. And so he says, whatever you do, make sure that it is done in love. Are you gifted with speaking? Is it done in love? Are you gifted with understanding of Scripture and the ability to teach insightfully? Is it done in love? Are you sacrificial in what you give and how you serve? Is it done in love? That's the evaluation that God will give to each of us. And what does that love look like? If you were back in verse Corinthians 13, he says, Love is patient. Love is kind, is not jealous, does not brag, is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered. This is essentially what it means to walk by the Spirit and bear the fruit of the Spirit. It is to bear the fruit of love. One author has said this, The health of spiritual living is not reflected in spiritual gifts, but in spiritual fruit, the first and chief of which is love. And without the fruit of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit cannot operate except in the flesh, in which they become counterfeit and counterproductive. Though through the fruit of the Spirit, God gives the motivation and power to minister the gifts of the Spirit. And so when we evaluate whether we are operating spiritually in the gifts that God has provided for us, our evaluation is, is it done in love? Is it done in love? Love, which is to say this, is it done with patience, with patience? Is it not easily angered, irritated, or put off? Is it not easily deterred in the face of difficulties, or is it ready to quit right away with the least bit of resistance? Is it embittered or frustrated or irritated with the least bit of lack of recognition or honor? Or lack of gratitude. He says here, love is patient. And it has the idea as well of not avenging oneself when wrong. What if in my service someone mistreats me, someone misunderstands me? Well, when done in the fruit of the Spirit, that exercise of the giftedness is patient. It doesn't return evil for evil, but perseveres in exercising the giftedness that was given to build that person up. Even the one who does not appreciate it. It's a reflection of the gospel. Paul himself said that he is an example of the mercy of God so that Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Love is patient because we've received patience. Love is non-retaliatory because God has shown us such mercy even in light of our sin. It's a gospel-grounded patience. Or is our giftedness exercised with kindness? Does it have the quality of gentleness and usefulness, obliging the needs and desires of others? One has noted this. So much Christianity is good but unkind. There was no one more religious than Philip II of Spain, and yet he founded the Spanish Inquisition. Was that done in love? In the supposed pursuit of truth? It was a pursuit that lacked kindness. It was a pursuit that lacked patience. It was a pursuit that lacked love. 
And yet, as we function in our gifts, they are to be marked with patience and kindness. This is what love is not. How do we know if we're not operating in love? Well, he does that by showing us the negatives. It's not jealous, doesn't brag, is not arrogant, doesn't act unbecomingly, seek its own, is not provoked, take into account a wrong suffered, or rejoice in unrighteousness. How do I know if when I'm exercising my gift, I'm exercising it in love or for my own motive? Well, here's the litmus test. Love is not jealous. Love doesn't want any kind of recognition necessarily for what it has done. It does not brag. It doesn't make sure to drop to someone else hints about the sacrifice made or the service given so that you can receive praise and honor. It doesn't one-up in its heart or try to one-up somebody else who's serving too so that we can somehow compare our service with their service. It's self-forgetting. It's humble. It's the kind of love that's self-denying, self-sacrificing for the good of others. It's not a merely sentimental kind of love either. He says it is, doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness. It's a holy love. It's a love that works towards not merely what brings comfort to another person's life, but what builds them up in the gospel of Christ. Again, it's self-forgetting and it's concern and service of others. That means when using our gifts of love, again, we're not taking account of how much appreciation we receive. Do you become embittered if you do something and it's not recognized? Do you ever think to yourself, well, I'm not going to do that again. They're not going to appreciate me, then I'm not going to serve them again. I gave up my whole Saturday to go do that and nobody even said thank you. Well, we should say thank you, of course. We should recognize it. But here he's dealing with the one doing the service. Was it, was it jealous? Was it, did it brag? Did it take into account a wrong suffered? Or was it done with self-forgetfulness? Is it find satisfaction in your service by this mere fact that what you did was pleasing to Christ? Could it be satisfied? Can you sleep at night without disappointment by the mere fact that Christ saw what you did? Christ saw the act of service. Christ saw the sacrifice and he was pleased. Even if somebody criticizes you for something you do, for something you have done, can you receive that criticism without retaliating, without cutting off any future work or help or sacrifice because, again, it wasn't appreciated? When you're functioning in love, you can. When you're functioning in love, He says this love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That is to say, love perseveres in believing and hoping the best about those we serve. It doesn't give up when it seems that growth and change are slow. It's enduring through difficulty and sacrifice and frustration and challenges that seem to keep coming. And it never fails. And it endures to the end. He says, now abide faith. Or faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Why is love the greatest? Because, as Jesus prayed, love is what remains to eternity. Love is the essence and the fullness of life we share with God. So the exercise of our gifts in love is the only mark by which God evaluates us and is the only mark by which God is honored. Is honored. It's not great accomplishments that will endure, not great popularity, not great claim, not great skill or admiration. All of those things fade, but what will remain is whether it was done in love. Whether it was done in love. 
Of course, the greatest example of this is Jesus in John 13. Let me just mention it to you. You're familiar with this scene. It's one of the most powerful scenes, really, outside of the cross. And this is anticipating the cross in the life of Christ. He's with his disciples the night of his betrayal. And it says... Verse 1, now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come and that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He came into this world because of love, because of love for those whom the Father had given him, because of love for the Father who had given this people to him. Well, is that reflected in us? It means love compels us just to show up. Rather than remain in comfort, Jesus existed in the form of God. He could have foregone all the discomforts of coming and living as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, but he didn't. He came to his own to redeem them. He left what would have been easy to do what is hard out of his love for those he came to serve. To love our brethren who share in our salvation is to love as Christ loved us. He loved them completely. He says he loved them to the end. He loved them consistently and without restraint. That means that love isn't merely an activity. It's not an event. Love isn't merely when we're doing a ministry to someone. It was the character of his life. It was how he operated all the time with them. It's how he functioned. It's who he was. He was the embodiment of love. He loved them to the end. He loved them not merely to the end of his life, but he loved them to the fullness. He loved them to the utmost. He loved them completely. He was able to love because he was confident of God's plan. It says in verse 3, Knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, he got up from supper, laid aside his garments, and taking on a towel, he girded himself. Here's our example of love. He was able to love because he knew what God's big plan was. He didn't get lost in the moment as though he were somehow losing something that were ultimately his, as though somehow in lowering himself, he was setting aside dignity. Actually, it was just the opposite. In laying aside his any kind of human personal dignity, he was actually exalting himself. And that's how it is. It's paradoxical. But he was able to do that because he knew what the plan was. He knew where he'd come from. He knew where he was going. In the same way with us, knowing our end enables us to be seen as low here. We know that we are exalted with Christ. We don't have anything to prove to him or to others. We know that we belong to God. We know that we are sons in Christ and daughters in Christ. We have nothing to prove but to prove our love for Christ himself and for others. He knew his relationship to the Father. He wasn't trying to earn anything. He didn't have anything to lose in terms of the Father's love for him. He knew that he was going to be restored to him forever. Verse 2, and here's probably the hardest. He was committed to complete the service in spite of opposition. He says in verse 2, During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. Jesus knew that. He knew that. It says later, 
As he went around the table, he was wiping their feet. He was taking the role of a servant, of a slave. Their dirty, stinky feet. Comes to Peter. Peter says, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus said to him, what I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And Peter says, wash not only my feet, but my hands and my head. In other words, Jesus went around and was doing this act of service because he was committed to complete that which he had come for, which was to serve. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He washed Judas's feet. He knew at that moment that Judas was determined to do the will of the devil, to betray him, to turn him over. But he knew that was part of God's plan as well. And he had come to fulfill his purpose and he was committed to doing it. And so even of the betrayer whom he knew that very night would betray him, he washed his feet equally as he did his other disciples. Peter tries to resist. And yet he faces each with a commitment to do exactly what he had intended to do. He was committed to complete his service. He was undeterred. That means that when we do an act of service, we are committed to completing it and we will not give up when there are difficulties. That's to walk in love. We will not give up because those we serve are unworthy. Our service is not based on the worthiness of those we serve. It's based on Christ. That principle we've talked about many times. We serve not because somebody provokes in us love, but the love that we express and that we are to express in our giftedness to one another is motivated totally and completely by the prompting and the provoking of the Holy Spirit in us in response to the gospel of Christ. That's the motivation. It's not that we loved God, but that he first loved us. It was nothing about this motley crew that would have provoked love in Christ. It was because he chose to love them. The love that he had was his own possession expressed to those around him. He served the unworthy. And this was just a foretaste of the greater service that he was to complete. He told Peter, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you. And he says, later, you don't realize what I've done now. He says, but later you'll realize it. Later you'll know. You'll get it. You'll get it in due time. When are they going to get it? When would they understand? When would they grasp why he went around the table and was able to do this? It would only be after the cross. It would only be after the cross. How was Peter made clean? How are any made clean? It's not... By any other means, but that he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That as John would say, he made him to be the propitiation for our sin, the complete satisfaction and completion and fulfillment of all that God requires from us and for our sin is realized in Christ and in Christ alone. His washing their feet, while we look at that as a great act of service in the life of Christ, was actually a minimal act of service compared to what he was going to do. 
later when he went to the cross. Essentially saying, Peter, you don't realize this now. You think my getting dirt on me and washing your dirty feet is a big deal? I'm going to do far more than that for you. I came that I might take the dirt and the filth and the guilt of your sin onto myself so that you might be clean. I'm not concerned so much about your feet, uh, but about your soul. And that's the measure of love. That's the measure of love. And he was committed to do it. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And he knew that he was setting an example for us, not merely for them, but for all of us. He says in verse 17, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. You're blessed if you do them. So it's not merely knowing it, but it is that it actually works itself out in our life. And so he says, words we're familiar with in verse 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. He was conscious of setting an example. And that's the example we are to follow When Paul says the greatest of these is love, everything else will pass away, but love will endure forever. Love is the very end for which we have been saved as he prayed to the Father that we might fully know and experience the Father's own love for him, that we might know that love ourselves. That is then what is to display, be displayed in our exercise of giftedness. When each one of us is serving with speaking or serving gifts, According to the manner that God has called us, when our serving is done in the power of the Holy Spirit, when it manifests the fruit of the Spirit in love, when it reflects the life of Christ in us, then there is a joyous unity and harmony among the body of Christ. It's a little bit of heaven on earth. Paul says to the Romans that then we will know this truth of the kingdom, that we will live in righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And it's when we operate in that kind of love, when we, when we use our giftedness with that kind of love, when we serve one another with that kind of love, when our fellowship is marked by that kind of love, that God is glorified in Christ. And again, that's where he, he leaves us again. So that in all things, 1 Peter 4, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory forever and ever. That is the end of all things, is the glory of God. If we could capture that, it's life transforming. Life transforming. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? Who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. The use of our spiritual gifts are not only in love, but they have the singular goal of God's glory in Christ, and that is consistent with the end of all things anyway. The only reason that we're here is that we might bring glory to God. What does that mean to bring glory to God? That means that we live and we think and we reason and we delight in a way that's consistent with our highest goal and treasure, which is God himself in Christ. It means our lives reflect the worthiness of God. 
That means when we deny ourselves because Christ is worthy of that kind of service, we give him glory and we exalt his worthiness. When we live consistent with his own character, we exalt Christ and we give him glory because people say, what is that that I see in you? And we say, Christ is what you see in us. We exalt Christ when we walk in truth and we walk in holiness because people say, how can you do that? How can you walk in purity like that? How can you walk in truth like that? And we say it's because Christ has transformed us. That's why. And so in all of these things, then, he receives the glory. He receives the glory. And the heart of the believer says, yes and amen. I would have it no other way. Because that is what my heart desires. And that's important, again, to remember in light of giftedness. Because, as one has said, anyone who has begun a ministry in Christ's name finds it perilously easy to shift the ownership of the enterprise. It becomes his ministry, her organization. Success demonstrates one own, one's own organizational skill and entrepreneurial genius. The leader gives lip service to God's enabling grace, but tests management techniques. He looks to professional consultants more than the Lord, and the success of such a ministry may be a graver judgment from God than its failure. There's nothing more than than success to make us start to think that we're actually the source of that rather than God himself. And so we need the reminder that all is to be done for his glory. Whose glory is he talking about here, the Father or Christ? That's debatable. There's good arguments on either way, but at the end, as one author called it, a blessed ambiguity. It doesn't matter because God's only glorified the Father in Christ, and Christ's whole mission is to glorify the Father. If you can't glorify one without the other, you would glorify God when we glorify Christ. And God, in all of his triune glory, is glorified when we live consistent with his will and with his word. And that's what the end of all things is anyway. He says, To whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Paul said that God is working towards the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. And so that's really the end here. And that's a way to kind of wrap up this section. Our gifts, we have them. We are to be using them. Our gifts are not for ourselves. They are for the building up of the body of Christ. They are varied in their beauty and their, they have a beauty by their variedness. But at the heart of it all, is that our gifts and our relationship and our service to one another is, when done in the power of the Spirit, to be marked by love. And we have a loving congregation. But as Paul told the Thessalonians, we can always excel still more. Excel still more. So the challenge to us is, one, are you serving? Are you somehow serving the body of Christ? Are you serving by the strength which He supplies And is your service marked by the fruit of love? And is the pleasure and the desire and the blessing of your service that God is glorified through you? That's where he's pointing us and that's what the table reminds us of this morning. That it's Christ's kingdom that we await. It's Christ who is our King of kings and our Lord of lords. It's Christ who has enabled us to do anything uh, that we do. And so as we come and we take the elements this morning... Spend some time in prayer asking Christ how you might serve in his kingdom and the Father if you're not serving already. Confess any sin, but come to the table as a time not only of confession, which is part of it, but also of rejoicing, of blessing, of delight, 
in him who has called us to himself. So let me pray, and then the men will come forward and hand out the elements. Father, thank you for the gift of grace. Thank you for Christ. May all that we do be done in love. Will you help us to grasp these words by enabling us to grasp ever more deeply the reality of Christ crucified for us. And may we live in the power and the fruit and the joy and the blessing of your spirit. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm.